Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Qualcomm, Broadcom, will they get together? How much will this deal cost and will it benefit investors? Let's find out more from Anand Srinivasan. He is our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Also joining us is Brooke Sutherland, our mergers and acquisitions columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Thank you both for being here. Anand, maybe you can uh, start by just explaining why this might be a good deal for Broadcom. Look, I mean, this creates a powerhouse, create an alt-intel, if you will. And Broadcom's um, claim to uh, the semiconductor industry comes from the fact that it is a phenomenal roller-up of companies. It's done this pretty extensively since its existence. And in in doing Broadcom first, acquiring Brocade, first uh, Avago buying Broadcom, then the renaming themselves to Broadcom and buying Brocade, and then potentially buying Qualcomm, which is in and of itself in the process of buying NXP, will assemble a company that is very, very strong in the data center in all your routers, which is uh, all your networking gear, number one. It will be incredibly powerful in your phone, uh, both from a modem and processor perspective, as well as the RF chip. And if they're able to swing NXP into that equation, they will own your auto, too. Great. So... so <laughs> And, and in one of the things that comes as a byproduct of uh, Qualcomm's management focus in this equation is that they um, are an incredible leverager of costs. Uh, their um, SGNA as a percentage of sales is actually incredibly low in the semiconductor industry. Um, they'll have a tremendous amount of scale and reduced manufacturing costs. So from a whole host of angles, this makes a lot of sense. Now, if you look at Qualcomm, the target entity, it's got some drama going on with its intellectual property assets, and it's embroiled in litigation with, with, uh, with Apple. Uh, Broad, Broadcom is much, much more friendly with Apple, so potentially they come in, they uh, readjust this uh, relationship, um, reassess where royalty rates are, and um, start a new relationship going forward. I think that that is doable. Um, if they're not willing to do that, you can potentially corral the IP assets in a, in a particular um, basket, potentially sell it off, or potentially diminish its value, move all the IP over to the chip division. There's a whole host of things you can do here. Right. Um, and I think it makes for a very, very compelling semiconductor company. All right. So, Anand, you seem to be uh, pretty optimistic about this whole deal and sort of the rationale behind it. Mm -hmm. Brooke, come on in here, because you expressed some skepticism in a recent column saying that uh, Qualcomm is not such an obvious target. And there are so many moving pieces here that all have to fit together perfectly, given the fact that the NXP purchase hasn't been completed yet. Uh, and because of all these mergers, can you just walk us through your, your thinking here? Yeah, I think that would be, you know, my biggest sort of pushback is that you are piling, you know, I think at this point, six big deals on top of each other. If this goes ahead, if you include, you know, the purchases that NXP made before Qualcomm bought NXP or the purchases that Brocade made. I mean, so 
I, you know, to Anand's point, I think that um, Broadcom CEO Hoktan is known as this good operator and this sort of skilled master of rolling up deals. But we're talking about multitudes of what he's done in the past. And anytime you talk about a mega merger, there's integration risk there. If you start piling them on top of each other, it just makes everything more complicated. And it's not like these companies are just humming along perfectly at this point. You know, I think there are probably opportunities to reassess the Apple situation or to, you know, sort of rethink the configuration of the businesses. But that is also going to be complicated. And it does sort of open up maybe the potential for increased competition from some of these companies' rivals. Um, And, you know, I think sort of just raises the question of ultimately what this company is going to look like and how well it's going to be able to What about the debt? I mean, how is it going to pay for it? Well, that's the other thing is that, you you know, the debt load after all of these deals, their companies are sitting on a, a pretty hefty burden here. And I think, you know, that that is another factor here that you have to think about is that what is the motivation for all of these deals? I mean, they're not doing it because they're growing really well on their own. They're doing that because this is the opportunity for them to get scale and to sort of build growth through M&A. And I think, you know, anytime you sort of see that happening and then companies simultaneously piling on debt... I, you know, I think that should give you pause. You know, I'm actually going to push back on that for a whole host of reasons. One is that if you look at the revenue profiles on, on all of these companies, there's very little overlap. If you look at Broadcom, Brocade, NXP, Qualcomm, the overlap, the adjacencies are, are, uh, are between Broadcom and Brocade are pretty significant, between Broadcom and Qualcomm are pretty significant. But there's no, the reason Qualcomm is buying NXP is because it wants to diversify away from handsets and how far do you have to get away? You can go go to autos. The other part of it is for the last five years, we've been writing about semiconductors being the new industrials and the fact that they are cash rich and debt poor. And, uh, you know, debt has never been a good word in the technology industry. And debt is cheap, Right. And um, there is capital returns at stake here, and an optimal mix of debt is is um, is good um, uh, investor friendliness. Brooke, what do you think? Uh, Got a response? <laughs> no, I mean I think you know I there's there's two sides of this coin, but I just think you know having seen a lot of these big deals, and you know I understand that the um, semiconductor industry is sort of adapting to this new sort of financial profile, but. You know, debt is debt, and integration risk is is still there. And so, I think we'll just sort of see how this plays out. But there certainly are risks here. It's definitely going to be interesting to watch, especially because uh, Qualcomm is uh, saying that they're not going to accept it. So Broadcom is going to probably have to wage some kind of proxy war. So it should be interesting to see how this plays out. Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, our thanks to you. And our thanks to you, Brooke Sutherland, Mergers and Acquisitions Columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, uh, Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. You can find all the columns there. And, you know, both of you raise really good points. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to watch the biggest tech deal on record.
shares of Michael Kors Holdings, they're up more than 13.5%. This comes after the company handily beats earnings estimates in the fiscal second quarter, despite the uh, drop in uh, same-store sales. They posted better-than-expected results. Uh, the retailer preparing a yes for that all-important holiday shopping season. And here to help us understand what's going on is the all-important Craig Johnson. He is the president of Customer Growth Partners. They're based in New Canaan, Connecticut, and he joins us now. Craig, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, tell us, what do you see as the positive and negative aspects of what Michael Kors Holdings is doing right now? Uh, well, first, good morning, uh, Pim. Great to be with you and Lisa. Um, Kors, we've been noticing it. You know, we have a team of 18 people across the country, another person in London. So we're in the stores every week. And we've seen kind of a step-by-step recovery there. Um, that, you know, it's not quite into positive territory, but it had been mid to high single digits, and they got it to negative mid single digits, and now they're only 1.8% negative. And um, we think this is a company that's slowly, slowly returning to health after some very severe damage to the brand by, by over-distribution, over-promotion, and so forth. And by going back to the basics of its core DNA style and fashion skills, we think it's on the way back. So those are the, the major factors. Uh, there's, you know, a couple other factors. You know, the, the, uh, the watches there are strong, and, you know, watches have been in the ditch for a couple of years now. The watches are having a nice comeback this holiday, uh, and that's another factor as well. So, Craig, can you sort of expand out based on the success that Michael Kors has had in turning itself around? Can you extrapolate out who you expect to do well this holiday season coming up and who you don't based on who has made an effort at uh, changing with the times? Well, the um, it, I, I want to be careful. You don't want to extrapolate too much off of, uh, you know, you know, one company that has had let's just say some ups and downs and you know they've been pretty challenged for the last year or two but again they're on the on the road to recovery we say right now um, but if if you look across the, the the spectrum some of the players are that have been challenged are going to continue to be challenged irrespective of course performance and I particularly mean the department store sector there and that with the potential exception of uh, of Nordstrom which is you're really doing fairly well the sector is is very very challenged um, and then you have other sectors such as apparel broadly, um, which is doing better than it was earlier in the year, but is still only going to get to maybe two percent year-over-year growth this holiday as a sector. And so it's you know it's a little bit of a mixed bag among sectors. But what we're seeing overall is is that after we did, we've done these, these we've done annual forecasts since the turn of the century this century. Um, and we're seeing sales as being up 4.3% year-over-year, and that's compared to a consensus of about 3.7%. And we think the risk to our forecast is overall retail. The risk of the forecast is not on the downside. The risk is actually more likely to be the high side. In all the signals we're, our team has been seeing, we issued our forecast last month, but everything we've seen since then confirms that this may actually be not just a 4.3%, but could even approach towards 5%, which would be the best you know, growth in some years. 
Uh, Craig, not to uh, to pour t- uh, too much cold water on the uh, the Michael Kors uh, story, but you know the purchase of Jimmy Choo obviously going to add sales to the to the uh, to the company. But when you look at the Comstore sales, the numbers were not that great, right? I mean, Comstore sales down about two percent. Uh, a lot of this the the income had to do with a twenty five percent reduction in the tax rate, and um, you know it, it. I'm just wondering if your flagship label in the same-store sales category, are going to fall on the high single digits in the Christmas quarter and decline, the description is, by the mid-single digits in the fiscal year as a whole, how does that point to a turnaround? I mean, and maybe you can twin that with the concept of tapestry, you know, the old coach, they're reporting mm-hmm. tomorrow. So, like, you go out, you buy Jimmy Choo, you say things are great, but if your flagship brand isn't working, what... Well, what you have to look at is is that... Here is a company that's been so deeply troubled for a good, a good couple of years, although the seeds of that difficulty go back four, five, six years when, this, when the store began to um, uh, overexpand, overdistribute, um, was in 3,600 doors worldwide. It, just, it was too much. You don't need that. And you, you, you can destroy a brand that way. And uh, to repair that brand damage... When you're so overpromoted and you're so overdistributed, that doesn't happen overnight. So we see the 1.8% comp that negative that they reported this quarter as being compared to guidance of, of negative mid-single digits. And for the last several quarters, they've been running high single digits uh, negative uh, or, or even a little, a little worse. And so a 1.8% is improvement. Now, whether how cold, how uh, steady that's going to be going forward is a little bit of an op- uh, a little bit of an open question. But the first thing they needed to do was take the hard medicine right. of cutting back on the promotions and cutting back on the uh, distribution. And so, you, you, the comp numbers may bounce around a little because you're comparing numbers versus last year right. when they were you know juicing up the uh, the promotional hype. Right. Well, Craig, you know, I just want to get your sense about this upcoming holiday season. I mean, it's got to be a make it or break it period for a lot of retailers. If they cannot uh, at least uh, boost their revenues by hooking on to the increase in watches or luxury sales or uh, technology, then are they dead? Because we're seeing consumers actually spend more and we're seeing the economy doing well. If they can't make it now, is this it? Well, I'm not prepared to say this, this is it, but people that don't react to the way the consumers are behaving now, the way their spending choices are changing, um, they are going to get crushed. But the smart players um, are, uh, are reacting. Like the watches are, are, are coming back, and so you have the, you know, the Apple Series 3. They, they, did, they finally got it right you know, in the third try. Uh, that's, 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 that's better. Uh, you have an overall economy that's expanding. Um, you know, disposable income is up. There's a wealth effect uh, uh, coming at tourists are returning. And clearly, if, if you're a retailer and you don't do well in this season when overall retail growth is going to be, you know, 4.3, somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, you have some real explaining to do. Hey, uh, Craig, uh, can you tell us who is uh, on, uh, on your blacklist in terms of uh, not going to do well? the rest of the year and who's doing who's knocking the ball out of the park well i i think the um the the folks that are going to be most challenged again are the are the department stores and you know it's like round up the usual suspects jcp just had their 
Penny just had their announcement the the, the other day that had you know they basically did a li- uh, inventory liquidation because they were way way over inventory. Macy's is, is having challenges. Dillard's is having challenges. Um, and those are some of the ones that are having the most difficulty. Some of the apparel, the women's wear uh, players are, 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 are challenged. And the people that are going to do well, though, are people that really sell value. And so you think value, you think at the, the very large end, you have companies like Costco and Walmart, which are doing great. Target is much improved. And then you have the off-pricers, TJ's, Burlington, and Ross, uh, which are, uh, are all you know, very well positioned for a holiday. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners, which is based in New Canaan, Connecticut. Well, in the past few weeks, CME Group announced its plans to offer a Bitcoin futures contract this year. And Aaron Brown, who is a columnist for uh, Bloomberg Profits, as well as former managing director and head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management, wrote a really compelling column where he said that this is kind of a, a sort of tipping point for the cryptocurrency. He wrote, if regulators smile and clearinghouses operate without problems, we'll find out what happens when cryptocurrency prices are exposed to real money. Aaron Brown joins us now. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. The implication here is that Bitcoin hasn't been exposed to real money yet. Can you explain uh, your idea here and what you expect to happen? Uh, Sure, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Um, The cryptocurrency total market capitalization, if you look across all all cryptocurrencies, is stated at something like $190 or $200 billion. But that really only represents a couple of billion real dollars people have put into it. Most of those Bitcoin, uh, most of those cryptocurrencies, uh, and incidentally, Bitcoin is maybe two-thirds of that total. It's, it's a majority of it. Um, either were people who got their uh, allocations free through mining or something, or they, uh, or they bought them at relatively low prices. So we don't really know if people are willing to pay $200 billion uh, for all those cryptocurrencies, or perhaps they're willing to pay $500 billion, or, or maybe they're only willing to pay $10 billion. We don't really know. Um, and that's because the exchanges to this point have essentially shut out most institutional money, most big holdings. You had to be either a Ph.D. in computer science or you had to be a very serious uh, uh, individual uh, to put substantial amount of money to work in cryptocurrencies. It seems possible, although we're not sure yet, that in two or three months that will no longer be true and anybody can put as much money to work as easily into uh, cryptocurrencies as they can to stocks or bonds, and then we'll finally see what these things are really worth. You own Bitcoin, right, Aaron? Uh, yes, yes, I have investments in a number of cryptocurrencies. So what are you looking for to determine whether big institutions actually are interested in investing in Bitcoin and putting their big money to work? Well, they have to recognize it as an asset class, basically. So this would mean that, uh, you know, um, and, and it would only be the more innovative pension funds, for example, might, might consider doing this, but they might say we're going to put 1% or 2% of our assets uh, into cryptocurrencies. Um, also, of course, a Bitcoin or, or, or any sort of cryptocurrency ETF would allow individual investors uh, to get in very easily. And some people are predicting that, you know, tons of money will flow in and 
hundreds of billions of dollars and the price of cryptocurrencies will soar, but I think it's equally likely that we'll find out that while there is some institutional appetite and some individual investor appetite, uh, most of it is just chasing high returns and people aren't really willing to put large amounts of money in and then the price will fall. But whatever the new price is, it will be a real price. It will be something where you can really buy and sell uh, large quantities. Aaron, is uh, is the increasing level of skepticism by some investors uh, going to assure the continued rise in the value of Bitcoin? You know, it's like the more you, the more you come up with reasons for why it really makes no sense, the greater the value it seems. Uh, yeah, that that is true. Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies in general are what we call in the uh, financial biz uh, badly anchored uh, assets with badly anchored prices. There's really no strong fundamental reason why Bitcoin should be $10 or a million dollars or $7,000, whatever it is. Uh, just whenever everybody agrees that's what the price should be, that's when it becomes valuable. That's how currencies work. You okay, know, but all right, so having... dollar should be worth either. All right, so having said that, it seems that there's a philosophical thread for Bitcoin, which is get away from the fiat currencies of governments, Correct. Uh, that was certainly much of the motivation for inventing it, but I think we're moving very far away from that. If we have CME futures trading on or CBOE futures trading on Bitcoin, uh, then it's not far away from the fiat currencies. Well, but I also have to wonder, Aaron, you know, there hasn't been a way for uh, naysayers to short Bitcoin, and that has sort of removed some of the healthy aspects of a functioning market. How much does that concern you? I don't think that's a big factor because you'd have to be a very, very brave short seller uh, uh, to want to short Bitcoin. So conceivably, we'll see a bunch of people come in. And, and frankly, there is a way to short cryptocurrencies. You make your own cryptocurrency and sell it. Um, so really, we've seen thousands of people do that. Um, and it hasn't, you know, uh, dramatically pushed down the price. I don't think short selling is going to have a big effect on the price one way or the other. That's really fascinating, Pim. I had never thought about it, but if you sell your own cryptocurrency, you're basically raising money from people who are willing to give it to cryptocurrencies without having to actually give as much back to them. I suppose that's the big short. Yes. Well, having said that, um, I kind of think that creating your own script, I think the federal government might have a little comment or two about that. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh, Aaron Brown, he is the former managing director and the head of financial market research at AQR Capital Management, and he is also a Bloomberg Profits contributor. market has been waiting for a tax reform plan out of Washington, D.C. We got it, and the response has been less than impressed. We could see that uh, certainly in the bond market, at least, yields going lower, typically an indication uh, that people are expecting slower growth ahead. Uh, To talk about this, I want to bring in Jim Vogel, interest rate strategist at FTN Financial, coming to us from Memphis, Tennessee. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking at the yield curve today in the U.S. I'm looking at the gap between 10-year and two-year Treasury yields. It is now at the narrowest since the end of 2007 in the wake of the announcement of this tax reform bill. What does this tell you? 
I think it, the market had always been anticipating uh, that the personal taxes would be cut more than d- developed in the plan that we're event- that we're looking at this week. And without those personal tax cuts, there's not going to be that sort of sugar rush next year as people um, spend their share of the cumulative $1.5 trillion in cuts. Jim, can you just give us sort of your perspective on interest rates right now and where they would be without the vast amounts of either quantitative easing in the United States or bond buying that's been going on in Europe? That's a tough question, but I mean, in rough terms, you probably need to think about at least 25 to 35 basis points higher. Uh, and the, the real question is going to be not whether we go up. Um, as that bond buying slowly um, disappears, uh, but whether uh, people will continue to issue a lot of debt like Apple today uh, as rates go up in response. Well, and you can add into that the tax plan because the interest that uh, a lot of companies pay on that debt would not be deductible uh, from taxes under that plan. So there has been speculation. I know that Bank of America Merrill Lynch, for example, came out today with a report saying that they expect big corporations to reduce their leverage by 10 to 30 percent in the wake of these uh, tax changes. Do you agree with that assessment? In, in rough terms, absolutely. Um, there's, it depends on how. There still may be some people that can get in under the, the most recent test, and so there could be some people that are actually expanding their leverage to take advantage of, of the cap in terms of interest rate deductibility. But um, the, the days of corporates issuing new debt hand over fist and just doing nothing but adding leverage uh, are at least going to calm down, both because their stock is more expensive on the buybacks and because the, the deductibility question is going to be an open issue maybe for the next three to five years. So, Jim, I don't understand in that context, I don't understand how yields could rise because if you have uh, the supply of bonds getting reduced, pulled back, as companies issue less debt, then you have a, a, a sort of smaller supply. You've got the same amount of demand or more as retirees uh, save money. So wouldn't this lead to even lower corporate yields? It pushes down on them, yes. But on the other hand, you've got what Pim was talking about in terms of the large amount of buying that's been done by central banks. So it's very possible for the two to net offset. And that's why we come up with um, the potential for rates to slowly drift up uh, as the market begins to approach equilibrium. Jim, you know, one of the things that everyone talks about seems to be inflation or the lack thereof. And uh, is it right to connect inflation with something that marks how old we are? Excess money supply growth. No one even talks about, you know, M1, M2, M3, M4. I mean, no one even mentions these things. But if you have uh, excess money supply growth, you get inflation. If the money supply is actually shrinking, you get deflation. Do you buy that? Really, we've not paid attention to it for so long because the um, uh, velocity of money turnover um, kept changing. And so you can't really um, track relative to the monetary supply and, and draw a straight line to inflation any longer. But for the, for in, in terms of thinking about interest rates, we are so far more focused on inflation expectations now than we ever were um, 
uh, six to eight years ago. Jim, I'd love to get your take on the Federal Reserve. We found out today that William Dudley, Bill Dudley, New York Fed president, is planning to retire mid-year next year. Uh, I want to start with who do you think would be a good New York Fed president to succeed Bill Dudley? <laughs> we haven't gotten that far yet. Well, okay. Um, it would be fascinating, though, if they uh, brought somebody in internally that was already there, because the regional Fed president choices have become more and more controversial. And with the high profile of the New York Fed, um, it might make sense for them to consider strong internal candidates rather than bring somebody with um, possible baggage in from uh, the private sector. All right. Well, how important is the fact that yet another uh, Federal Reserve president, uh, regional president, is leaving after all the departures that we've seen and all the vacancies? I mean, uh, does this change the equation for you as a bond strategist uh, of how to look at the way that the uh, Fed is going to approach tapering the balance sheet, et cetera, next year, given the uncertainty here with the composition of the Fed? Not yet, because still we see just incredible... um, we see uh, incredible, incredible longevity uh, in the Fed staff um, that's supplying a lot of the views that the um, governors react to. So while Dudley has been a principal architect of recent policy and a chief salesman of the short-term view of what the Fed was going to be doing, uh, he, replacing him doesn't really enter into our interest rate equation yet at all. Do negative interest rates in Europe and Japan enter into your equation? Uh, yes, because it they constantly uh, make the U.S. Treasury rates on a comparable basis that much more that they make them more. Um, attractive. And so anytime that we get like a run of the 10-year up to 247, like we did at the end of October, uh, you get a good bit of buying because the yields gap out so far versus Europe. Jim, real quick, where do you see the 10-year yield going uh, within the next six months? This is boring. We see it somewhere between 225 to 250. Well, that's not boring because right now it's a 231, I think. Uh, So it's not that far off. What it's saying is it's not going to move materially and that could potentially uh, affect the way that people invest, right? Give stability to the stock and bond markets. Uh, correct. And so that that reduction of volatility also helps keep corporate spreads tight. It reduces the term premium. It just changes the basic equation that we all grew up with in terms of thinking about the long end of the bond market when the Fed's tightening. Thank you very much for being with us. Jim Vogel is interest rate strategist for FTN Financial. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.